What's going on, guys? So Dan Wynn is out. He's doing his military thing. No issues, right? So I'm holding down the fort today. Uh, but today's guest is amazing. We're finally talking about the intricacies of some of the commercial real estate underwriting, okay? So Derek, um, he's a military vet, gotta love it, right? He was air defense. Then he decided after his time in Afghanistan that he was intrigued with understanding more about economics, right? Driving factors um, in different cultures that kind of drive the economy. So he went and got his undergraduate. He's now studying his MBA and he works for a commercial real estate consulting firm. And he also has a syndication company on the side. So a lot of value. But what he's uh, talking about in this episode is the, the intricacies of that underwriting, okay? So what is net present value and how can you use it to your favor? What is internal rate of return? What is discounted cash flows, right? And so there's so many times that uh, investors, right, especially when starting out, we get in uh, captivated, essentially, we get locked in with single family underwriting, how to operate a burr, how to do a flip, you know, a turnkey rental, right? And then obviously the dream, right? The goal is to move from single families into multifamily. Maybe not for everybody, maybe not for everybody, but it's a common thing. We want to get to the multifamily. So if you get to the multifamily, you can't use those same underwriting procedures. We have to elevate our game. And so Derek, uh, for this episode, he goes into a lot of some of those things that you got to consider, guys. It's a great episode, jam-packed with information. So without further ado, go ahead and watch. Hey, how's it going? This is Dan Wynn and Mike Glaspie, and this is the Military Cashflow Podcast, where we teach service members how to build wealth and create passive cash flow through real estate. We cover real deals, real numbers, and real lessons learned from other successful investors. Now, whether you're watching this on YouTube or you're listening on the podcast, we need you to like, share, and subscribe. Now, let's get started creating this military cash flow. So for our audience, go ahead and tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. I, uh, you know, I joined the military in 2009. I looked at it as an opportunity to not only be a part of, you know, something bigger than myself, as they say, be a part of that organization, but also as a way that I could really start setting myself up for my future. And so I joined the military 2009. I was a uh, 14 Juliet, which is air defense at a uh, later split. So um, I, I went the, uh, the shore ad route and I was at Fort Campbell for four years. I did three years at Fort Hood. Um, I really look back at my time at Fort Campbell as my my defining time in the military. It's where I put my stripes on. It's where I, I deployed to Afghanistan out of Fort Campbell. Uh, you know, I just, I, I got a lot out of that and it's, I, I ended up being medically discharged in just before my seven year mark. And I, you know, at the time I looked at it as horrible. I, I thought I was having the start of a, of a fantastic career. And, you know, now I actually look back at it as one of the best things that ever happened to me because it, it was really a catalyst that allowed me to combine my passion with my profession. Um, I got out, I pursued an undergrad in economics, ended up, you know, just falling in love with the subject. I actually was able to, out of the, 
out of the 101 hours that I completed at that institution, I was able to get a 3.97 GPA, just, you know, really loved the subject and really took a lot of the skill set from the military and applied it to my education. Uh, from there, I really kind of through business cycle theory found my passion for real estate. And I was able to go and, you know, kind of start getting more in depth into real estate, joined a mentor program after consulting for a while. And I use that as the catalyst to get where I'm at now, which is at a, I work within global advisory for Altus Group. It's a commercial real estate consulting firm. And, you know, I've positioned myself now where even though I'm at the beginning of my career uh, within real estate, I've, you know, I'm at a place where I get, I get to essentially be a part of the appraisal process and directly do the initial financial marketing and market analysis for a little over $4 billion in real estate on a quarterly basis. That's amazing, man. So we don't typically have too many guests that are in commercial real estate. So we're really going to dive into that for this topic. Uh, this is something that so many people, when they start in real estate investing, they imagine single family homes, rentals and things of that nature, but they always aspire to get to commercial real estate, right? To get to those apartment complexes or those large retail centers. So we're really going to dig in that. But I mean, you started off in the military, man. And how does air defense relate to commercial real estate? Like where did that, 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 that those synergies, where did those align? Yeah. You know, I, short answer, it doesn't. Right. right. Um, you know, so I was actually in Afghanistan and to give you a little, maybe a little bit about the backstory of how I, I kind of back ended from one subject to the other. Mm -hmm. I was in Afghanistan and I saw the, the way first world technology being injected into that third world country was affecting mm -hmm. the populace. And it, it really had a profound impact on me that really got me thinking about economic variables and understanding productive capacity. And so I, I really didn't understand it in those terms at the time. But, you know, and even to take a step back, the reason you see small towns scattered throughout all of America is because we, before we had technology as it exists today, those towns were hubs of commerce for the local populace. They were stopping points for people traveling across country. You know, they served many roles that they might not necessarily serve today because of, you know, interstate and technology and the way we can do things today. But in Afghanistan, you largely saw that still happening. There were small towns everywhere that might have had, you know, 50 people. Like, there's just small areas. And I saw the telecommunications infrastructure being put into Afghanistan that allowed us to carry out a lot of our missions and objectives, but it would also allow them to have cell phones for the first time. And mm -hmm. so seeing a lot of that and seeing how that impacted them got me thinking, you know, how do all these variables work together? And so it was really my time in Afghanistan being a part of that, you know, third world environment and learning that culture and just seeing those people. It's what sparked my, my really my pursuit of economics, um, what I, I attribute to a lot of my multicultural development. And so it was, it was really at that point, like seeing firsthand economic variables. And so productive capacity is essentially what an entity or an individual can achieve. And it's, it, there's four main resource, there's four main factors that go into that. And so it's human capital, which is the ability of an individual to develop themselves. It's capital, you know, money, it's labor, what people are physically doing, and it's technology. And as technology progresses, it 
affects an individual's ability to develop themselves. Like we can sit here and have this Zoom conversation and record it and produce content where like, you know, 10 years ago, you would have had to be a major production studio to do this. And now, you know, we're sitting in our homes and we're, we're producing content. And so it's, you look at the way technology is increasing and it, it just, you know, and we could go down a whole nother rabbit hole, different time on economics itself, but it was a lot of these things that got me interested in, in economics as a whole. And so that's why I decided to pursue that. And then it was really, you know, I, I, I've, I've studied many different schools of economic thought. I, I really dove into that degree. And, you know, part of the honors program was learning a lot about different methodologies and not necessarily what's just the mainstream approach, but what are all the different schools, whether it's, you know, I, I personally follow the Austrian school of economic thought the most, but there's the Austrian school, the Chicago school, the, the Keynesian school, the neoclassical school, variations of all of those. And so it, it was interesting seeing what each school of thought provided to the overall theme of the conversation and how the, how they relate. But, you know, I really was fascinated with monetary economics and really understanding how monetary policy, financial policy affected business. Because when I got out, I, I really didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to combine my profession and my passion. You know, when I got out of the military, I, I made a commitment to myself that I was not going to just be a cog in the machine. I was not going to just fall into place. I was going to actively pursue my passion and aligning my prof my profession with my passion. And so it was actually in my monetary economics course where I, I, I really started to link economics and real estate. And so, you know, getting into business cycle theory, in layman's terms, what that is, is as an economy goes through expansion or recession, theoretically, what let's say the neoclassical Keynesian school says with the Federal Reserve is that as an economy starts to heat up through the expansion, they'll come in and artificially raise the federal funds rate, raise the interest rates, and that makes the cost of capital more expensive and is theoretically going to cool the economy down. Whereas in a time of recession, they'll lower interest rates and that will heat the economy up. It will get the economy going by lowering the cost of capital. And so what that tells me is, you know, you can link business cycle theory with the real estate cycle. And the real estate cycle is so heavily driven by interest rates because of the cost of capital. How much does it cost to service your loan, right? Now, what that tells you theoretically is if you're young in cycle, if you've gone through an, a, a recession and you've seen cap rate expansion, and what I mean by that is essentially net operating income can remain the same, little, little change, but you see value decline, not through any change in the asset, but as the asset experiences a cycle, you're going to see the values go up and down and that's through cap rate compression and expansion. And so when cap rates expand, the denominator, the value his how you get a cap rate is net operating income divided by value. And so you can kind of change that formula around and you can, you know, use it to say like, you know, if you have in this a little bit of a tangent, but it, let's say you have a hundred thousand dollars in net operating income and you have a 10% cap rate. Well, that would mean the assets valued at a million dollars. And so as you see cap rate expansion, so let's say the cap rate goes up to 20%, like these are just big numbers, but $100,000 with a 20% cap rate would be $500,000 value. And so that, that kind of shows as you move through the cycle, the way the value is going to be affected through nothing but the cap rate expansion and compression.
And so what that theoretically tells you is if you are young in a cycle and cap rates have expanded, you can leverage to the hilt because you know you're going to see cap rate compression. Compress. And yes. that means as long as you have a cash flowing asset, as long as you can service your debt, as long as you have an appropriate business plan in place, then you're going to be able to devalue appreciation through nothing more than cap rate compression. Now take the opposite of that. If you're late in a cycle and you've seen cap rate compression, you need to be much more worried about the debt service. You need to be much more worried about capital calls. You need to be much more worried about how you're implementing a business strategy because you know that you're going to see cap rate expansion. And that means your assets not going to change, but you're going to lose value. And you need to make sure your underwriting reflects that. Now, that was the theoretical thought that got me into real estate and really led me to commercial real estate, which is much more driven by income than anything else. And it now, you know, I say that now, obviously, it, it gets much more sophisticated. You know, real estate is not one generic market. It's all sub market driven. There's so many market variables that play within every given market that you might have a very compelling story in one specific area, despite being at the end of a cycle, you know, and it's getting back to productive capacity, right? What do we see in industrial today? Everything with online, I value my time. If I can order something to my house and not have to go spend an hour and a half doing it, I'm going to do that all day long because I want to spend my time in things that I find joyful, that benefit me. And so there's very compelling stories going on all around right now, you know, not even getting into the Federal Reserve's manipulation and the, the four plus trillion dollars they've injected into the economy at the end of an expansion. Like, what's that mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's, it's how do we perceive technology putting into, into this theory of, of the business cycle, real estate cycle? You know, it's, we're seeing a lot of cap rate compression in institutional quality industrial assets right now. We're seeing a lot of value being created, but there's a compelling story behind it. Look at the shift to online. Look how many big stores are integrating their online capacity with their in-store. You know, I did a SWOT analysis on the Home Depot and Lowe's a little over a year ago in their, each of those firms, giants within their industry, their number one objective was seamlessly integrating their online capabilities to their in-store shopping experience. And that tells me all day long, we're going to see industrial continue to gain momentum yep. because it's a shift in the economy. It's a shift in how business is conducted. And that's something to take into consideration within that holistic picture. All right, let's take a quick break. I hope you're enjoying this awesome episode. If this episode has got you pumped up and you're looking for more ways to learn, network, and take action, make sure you go over to www.militarycashflow.com where we're doing our absolute best to provide our military community with tons of value. Here's just a few things you'll find when you go to militarycashflow.com. You'll find our books. You'll find the Military Cashflow Facebook group where we have thousands of new and experienced military investors networking and asking and answering questions. You'll find our Military Cashflow real estate investing course that teaches you everything you need to know to buy a cash flowing producing asset. We teach you how to find the deal, how to analyze, how to renovate, how to build your team and maintain that property. 
You'll find our one-on-one -on -one coaching programs. And when you're ready to start taking action and invest, or you're looking just to PCS, we'll even vet and find an investor and military-friendly realtor in your area at zero cost to you. So make sure you head over to www.militarycashflow.com to get access to all these great tools. And lastly, and I would almost say most importantly, make sure you share this information with another military member that might find it valuable. All right. And with that said, let's get back into this episode. Yeah, this is a this is a perfect topic because the, the way that you're diving into the economic impact into real estate, most real estate investors don't see that that far out in advance. They're they're focusing on, you know, how much profit margin can they make on a flip or how much cash flow can they make, you know, whatever, if it's a burr strategy, whatever the case may be. But understanding the economic drivers behind the real estate as a industry as a whole is super important because as you mentioned, by, by being able to identify the asset that is thriving within the submarket was going to be the difference if you're able to actually be profitable and sustainable or not, right? If your business can actually continue to move on and you, you hit on um, industrial and I, I want to dig into that a little bit because when you say institutional industrial, I'm immediately thinking of warehouses. That's, that's what I'm immediately going to, but what other industrial assets are kind of thriving right now? Is it just warehouses or is there something else that's really kind of popular at the moment? You know, I, I see logistics. I see, you know, the, the tail end, like going from the business to the customer. I yep. see a lot of, yep. you know, a lot of that type of uh, development out there. I think there's going to be, you know, data centers. There's going to yep. be, you know, it, it's cold storage facilities. There, there's so many different niches within industrial that I think there's, there's a, you know, it's, it's a compelling asset class all around. A good point. I'm writing those down because, uh, you know, the one thing I love about commercial real estate as a whole is that um, there's so many, there's different asset classes, but then there's like subcategories of those asset classes. So within industrial, obviously you mentioned data centers, cold storage facilities, obviously warehouses, self-storage, um, you know, and then obviously you have your, your chemical plants and things like that, or your manufacturing plants, all of that falls into that one category. And then you have your multifamily, right? Your apartments, which is extremely yeah. popular. People love apartments and that's great. Um, you know, then you have your office, you have your retail, then you have your multi-tenant retail, so forth and so on. When people hyper-focus on, on one asset class and they can really understand the intricacies of, you know, what makes it tick? How can you increase your NOI effectively, right? When is the cap rate going to compress or expand within that cycle like you're talking about? That's when people really start to get creative and successful when they're looking at their different strategies, acquisition strategies, exit strategies, exit timeframes, all that good stuff. So this is- this well, And is that's, yeah, you know, and I, I would say it's such an important thing right now to have proper underwriting procedures, just because we are at the end of a cycle. And it's one thing I would note is prior to COVID, Back to what I was saying about theoretical business cycle theory and the way the Federal Reserve manipulates the Fed funds rate. After the great financial crisis, 07, 09, we had near zero rates for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. And when the Federal Reserve started to increase the Fed funds rate as they're theoretically supposed to, we really saw an inability to normalize rates 
back to, let's say, pre-recession averages, like four, five, six percent in that range. Mm -hmm. And so what does that mean from an overall economic picture that the Fed, the federal funds rate has never been normalized? We're still at historically low rates prior to COVID. And then what do you see in September of 2019? You see the the interbank lending, you see the repo market, it, that rate, interbank lending rate is an overnight, it's, it's really overnight to 14 days short-term lending that is really meant to facilitate interbank transfers to meet reserve requirements. Commonly thought of within the financial industry as a very safe market, that rate usually averages two to two and a quarter percent. It shot up to 10% overnight, and that's prior to COVID. Like to me, that screams systemic issues. But as soon as COVID hit, that stopped being talked about. And I, I would highly encourage anyone to go out there and Google the repo market, September 2019. It, it, it's a very compelling question that I feel like never got answered. And we saw the yield curve invert. I think it was two or three times in 2019. So, you know, it's it, in my mind, like we were already on very shaky footing from an economic perspective. Rates were never normalized. The repo market rate shot up to five times what it's supposed to be. The yield curve inverted. All these are signs of a recession. And so that that tells me from a, 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 a cycle perspective, we're supposed to be at the end of a cycle right now. We had a 10 plus year expansion. And now we're seeing the Federal Reserve pushing interest rates back near 0%. We see an injection of over 400 of over $4 trillion into the financial markets we see for the first time ever direct cash payments to people. What does this mean? And, and that's, I, I tell people, you know, I'm not trying to just say, oh, you know, it's, it's a bear market. You know, I'm not trying to right. do the bear strategy. I'm just saying these are questions that should be asked yeah. because technology, it does offset some of this. You know, we we're making strides never like never before. And it's, you know, think globally, there's negative yielding rates negative interest mm -hmm. rates yep. all across the globe. Yep. And so what does that mean for America? Even if we see cap rate compression and we're seeing interest, we're seeing the yield that an asset's going to produce go lower. Well, a low rate's still better than a negative rate, right? And so that that's a pretty compelling picture to say there's certain asset classes that we might continue to see cap rate compression despite being at the end of a cycle. And, and so it's just, I, I would tell people right now, with this picture I'm painting, all these questions that you should be asking, proper underwriting techniques are more important than ever. You know, how are you putting in capital expense? You know, for multifamily specifically, do you have turnover expense that's not related to capital expense? Because that's an operational expense in multifamily that is related to capital, but is independent of let's say a normal capital expense for commercial real estate, you know? People beat up their units. It has to be fixed. Yep. That's an operational expense. So are you putting in capital expense for turnover expense and structural expenses unrelated to operation? Are you, are you going through and seeing what occupancy can I maintain in this unit and still meet my debt service obligations? Do you know what capital call, like at what value could you have a capital call and are you prepared to meet that capital call 
And, and these are all questions that are very important. They, they, people need to understand the implications of these. And so, you know, I, I would tell you this all day long. If I was approached with someone that wanted, let's say I was raising capital for my firm and it showed, let's say, a, a 12% IRR, internal rate of return, and it was very conservatively underwritten right now, I would much more likely consider that asset than something that had an 18, 20% IRR that had very sloppy underwriting cons considerations. You know, and it, it's all about what are you presenting, what are you projecting, and how are you making sure that your capital, your investor's capital is going to be protected in these uncertain times? You, you touched on a lot there, and I want to dig into a couple of those components. So first and foremost, the simple fact, I, I saw a meme the other day, and it, it made me laugh because it literally said, it was, it was a young lady saying, I don't understand what's the problem with the government just pumping in money, make money. We create it. It's our money. And then the meme title was something along the lines. This is why we need to study economics in, you know, in, in uh, middle school or something like that. And, and that's so important. Understanding economics just in general. Another point is, 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 uh, People always go out, try to make more money, right? And they spend time studying their hobbies like football or whatever it is, but they never spend time studying money, how the inflation system or how the Federal Reserve works, what it actually means to the economic cycle when we artificially pump $4 trillion into the economy, right? As soon as we took the dollar off of the gold standard, something that was actually a tangible asset, and we just said, hey, this is now a fiat currency, we're just going to print money at will, yeah. the dynamics of everything changed. Understanding how money works, how the market works, how assets work, and where we can derive value is so important. So I really wanted to, 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 to reiterate that for the audience, because what you're talking about is extremely important. So you hit a few different things about underwriting that I really want to touch on. You talked about, uh, you know, how to use CapEx, um, turnover expense being an operational expense, different occupancy rates, things like that. Now, obviously, you work in commercial consulting, right? Commercial real estate consulting. But is there a system or a template that you use for underwriting? How do you go about underwriting assets? Sure. So I would say when I'm underwriting an asset, you know, let's say stepping away from my firm, just doing it uh, from Altus Group, let's say when I'm, I'm doing it myself, I am looking for a few certain things. Uh, number one is what's the debt service coverage ratio? You know, what is under, let's say, ideal stabilized operations? What is my debt service? And what that means is let's say um, my debt service is up, let's say my debt service is $100,000 and my net operating income is $150,000. That means before my debt obligation, I am able to achieve one and a half times 150% of my debt service. And so that would tell me, okay, this under stabilized conditions, that is a fairly healthy number that would say, you know, there's little risk under ideal conditions of me not being able to service that debt. However, one thing you can then go and do is adjust your occupancy. You can find out, okay, if I say stabilized as 95% for this multifamily asset, at what percentage is my debt service now 
in question. At what percentage do I only have $100,000? At what percentage is my NOI below $100,000? And that tells an investor, that tells an operator, a sponsor, what they have to meet in order to maintain that, that debt service and to meet their obligations, to not risk a capital call to their investors. Now, um, a few other things. It's, you know, one thing I always tell people too, if you're underwriting an asset, do not take what, let's say an operator, a sponsor, you know, someone just gives to you as fact. You know, there's several situations, especially if you're going for a value add strategy, you might see a mom and pop owned, you know, facility where they don't have a management fee because they do it themselves. Okay, well, we know depending on the size of the structure, that's going to be anywhere from three to 10%. Mm-hmm. And so that's one thing I would always say too, is you need to go into underwriting with your own metrics that you know, you apply to your business model and your strategy. And so I, I always tell people, it, it's very important to understand how you want to operate, because I don't know about you, but it's, I don't plan on being a, a, a property manager. I, I want to be an investor. You know, I want to put my time to its highest and best use. And so to me, I'm always going to build that in to my underwriting, because if, if I can't maintain that asset with hiring a property manager, it's not an asset I'm going to pursue. I love that. I love the fact that I'd say this all the time. So many people, um, when they start off investing, and I don't care what the asset is, it can be single family or it can be their apartment complex, it doesn't matter. They always look at um, how can we cut expenses by taking on some of the responsibility ourselves. And I am a firm believer, just like you mentioned, I'm an investor. I'm not, I'm not purchasing real estate to start another job right? I don't want to put my time in there. I want the asset to perform and I want my money to work for me. So when I look at that, it's always, you know, people say, well, I want to learn, well, I want to manage my first property. So I learned, you know, how to manage it. So I know if they're doing it right. That's bull. I personally think you should learn how to manage the manager from day one, if that's your objective. So just like you're saying, know your metrics, know how you want this asset to perform. Use that to drive your underwriting. I think yeah. that is, as genius is well said, well, well articulated. And you know, I, I would take that a step further. I, I think having the mindset of how do I cut expenses while, you know, from a hundred foot up perspective, obviously you want to have, you know, expenses aligned with whatever the market rates are. You know, it's nice if you can get a little below market, but in general, the people I work with, I want them to be well paid because if they're well paid, they're going to treat my asset right. They're going to treat me right. If the people that work on commission for me, brokers, agents, if I'm not always trying to get them to come in and well, can you give me a percent less? Can you do this? Can you do that? No, I value your service. I want you to understand that I value you, that I value this relationship and that I know by surrounding myself with high level operators, it's only going to help me in the long run. And so I, I'm a huge proponent of not cutting prices. You know, I want the people I work with to be well-paid individuals. Did everybody hear that? Did everybody? So I'm a broker and there's so many times there's individuals who will say, hey, can we do it for 2%? Can we do it for 1%? Whatever, blah, blah, blah. As guys, just listen, just rewind and listen to that again. It's so imperative to understand that all of these professionals have a finite amount of time, just like we all do. So if you want them 
to be more uh, in tune with finding you deals and representing you and putting more of that energy in there, you got to make sure they're well compensated. I love that. <laughs> that is so important. Well paid for the right people, right? Your professional experts. Super, super important. All right, so let's talk about this uh, this uh, DSCR, debt service credit ratio. Um, so uh, again, to recap, debt service credit ratio is just your ability to cover your obligation, your debt obligation, and actually have excess cash flow, right? Just simplify it as much as we can. What is the general rule of thumb for a debt service credit ratio? What's the What do you see right now in today's market as being, hey, we must meet this in order to be successful? I generally would say about one and a quarter. So, you know, one and 125% more. I think yep. that's pretty uh, industry standard. I will say that that's not my direct area of focus per se, but okay. just from my underwriting experience, that is what I would say is pretty normal with lenders, one and a quarter percent. Okay. And that, and that's pretty common. We see, you know, 1.25 uh, is pretty much like that, that general rule of thumb. Um, now I got a question for you. This is a little bit of a, of a twist of a question, but I've been looking really deep into um, how healthy uh, financial statements can be for different, just individual businesses, right? We're looking at like net profit margin and things of that nature. Do you know what a general healthy net profit margin would be for a commercial asset, something, and I know that assets will differ, but whatever your expertise is, whether it's multifamily or if it's, you know, a retail space, what's a general healthy net profit margin? So I, that I would say that area is actually a little outside of my wheelhouse and I, yeah. I could take a step back and really talk more about the appraisal process okay. and, you know, kind of getting into that. But in, in so much, so much of that is going to depend on just the, the asset class where it's located, yeah. you know, the credit worthiness of the tenants per se. Um, you know, th there's so much that goes into that, you know, and speaking to credit worthiness, like what's the discount rate you're applying? You know, what's the, you know, what are, what are a few things there? But I, I would say in general, there's so many variables that go into that. It, it would be pretty, pretty client, pretty tenant specific, investor specific. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree. Um, and I, I know that was a, a wazoo way out of left field, but um, there's so many variables in commercial real estate. Yeah. And a lot of times, you know, when individuals are getting started with real estate, they get so uh, encapsulated with, um, you know, single family numbers, right? Yeah. Cash on cash return, flips, whatever profit margin, but they don't think about what it entails to go into commercial net present value, yeah. discount rate, so forth. And, you know, I, I could even speak to kind of looking at a healthy profit margin. You know, there's so many ways to evaluate real estate. And I, I know you're going to post my LinkedIn profile. And if, yeah. if you go on my profile, you'll see I've written an essay on essentially five different metrics, but you have, you know, return on investment, which is just the total return over your initial outlay. You have cash on cash return in year one. You know, what is the asset going to cash flow in year at the end of year one compared to your outlay? You have the equity multiple, you know, so that's essentially if you take the ROI number, your total return, and then you, you can put that over your investment. So, you know, it might be you're over the course of the life of investment, it produces 300,000, you put in 100,000. So your equity multiples three, right? 
but then it really gets into more sophisticated metrics as well. And these are the areas I, I like to dive into from the commercial perspective, which is you have net present value and internal rate of return. And, and so these, these metrics are actually very correlated. Uh, the difference is the internal rate of return is the discount rate that brings your net present value to zero. And so what I mean by that is let's say you have, and this is one thing I love about getting into the sophistication at, at the institutional level is it really allows you to project cash flows. And so you might say uh, fundamentally, what's the difference between a dollar today and a dollar tomorrow, right? It, it's the time value of money. It, it's what is it worth to be separated from your capital for that given time period. And so what we can say is we discount that money by the lenders or by the investors required rate of return, their discount rate, right? So if you as an investor have an 8% required rate of return, then I can say from time zero now to time year one, that I'm going to discount that year one amount by 8%. Because a year from now, it's worth 8% less to me than it is today. And now you can take that theoretical underpinning and move it out. Let's say you have a 10 year hold period. And I can say any cash flow that I project in year 10 is going to be compounded at 8% every year to time zero. So, you know, I, I obviously these are made up numbers because I don't have a calculator right in front of me, but let's say you have a hundred dollars and you compound that at 8% a year, that hundred dollars might be worth, you know, 40, $50 today just because you're losing 8% per year compounded. And that's what really allows you to see from a sophisticated level at the institutional level when you're, when you're doing discounted cash flow analysis is we might say, hey, market rents are going to grow by 3%. Market expenses are going to grow by 3%. Or we might be in a really hot asset area, industrial, you know, let's say the Inland Empire in California, you know, we're going to get 4% market growth and expenses will just be 3%, you know? So there's, there's variables like that you can put into your model. And so imagine it's, you know, let's say you have 3% growth every year. So those revenues are growing, your expenses are growing. And so you get out to year 10 and, you know, okay, if you have a hundred dollars of revenue today, well, that's $103 in year one, it's a hundred and, you know, six, whatever in year two. And so you can grow those out by the projected growth rate, and then you can discount it all back based off your required return. And so you, you can forecast what something is worth at any given point in time. And that allows you to just have so much more of an understanding of whether of making proper investment decisions today, here, and now net present value is the present value of future cash flows minus the present value of your outlay. And so it, it, it's so important to have that proper understanding and then take that a step further. So we were talking about IRRs earlier. Well, and you can't do, you, you need to use a tool like Excel um, to really find an IRR because of the sophistication of the math involved. But let's say we had a, an asset where we discounted the future cash flows, and you know, let's say they were um, 150,000, and your initial outlay is 50,000, so your net present value would be $100,000, and so that tells me at a discount rate of 8%, which is what we chose, 
that the net present value in present day terms, your firm will increase in value by $100,000. Now that is a, I, I personally love net present value because I love seeing what different discount rates for my required rate of return is. But the more commonly used version outside of finance industry is people just have an easier way of understanding interest rates, I feel, and I, I think that's pretty industry common, is instead of saying, okay, well, our 8% return is what got us to 100,000 net present value. Let's instead plug it into the financial calculator in Excel and say, at what discount rate does the present value of the future cash flows equal the present value of the outlay, right? So at what time does my future cash flows equal the outlay? And so what that means is if I discount it all, like, 100,000 net present value at an 8% discount rate, that means I need to increase my discount rate to make those equal. So you might see that and under those same circumstances, the IRR would be, let's say, 13, 14%, 15%. And that tells an investor, you could discount your money by, let's say, 12% every year. And that is how you would understand the discount rate. And so that's the required rate of return. And, and so that a lot of that goes into how you perceive your future cash flows. And then, you know, taking a step further, there's like there's two types of income methods. There's the direct capitalization, the direct capitalization and the yield capitalization method. So direct cap is essentially taking a stable an asset under stabilized conditions and dividing it by the capitalization rate to get a, a value, you know, a, a, to an anticipated value. Whereas if I do the discounted cash flow method, instead of, you know, like for a direct cap, we might just say, even though it's not specific to any one thing, we might just say, well, let's take 10% for, you know, capital expense. And that, that, it, it's useful. You know, I think the direct cap is a very good method for kind of getting a ballpark idea of, you know, what the value may be or using that as a backup reference to let's say the DCF method. Well, under discounted cash flow, I could say, hey, look at this asset. I get an inspector. My inspector looks at the roof. He says, hey, in three to four years, this roof needs to be replaced. Or he might say, in eight to nine years, the roof needs to be replaced. Well, through all the framework of what we just discussed, we know that an asset that doesn't need a roof replaced until eight or nine years has a much lower effect on the present value of my cash flow than an asset that needs a roof replaced in three to four years. And so we see through that analysis that we would be much more likely to maybe choose a given, you know, all else equal an asset that the roof replacement is further down the line because we know that there's going to be inflation. The dollars we're spending on that roof have less value than the dollars we would on the roof three to four years from now. And so there's so much more sophistication that comes out of understanding time value of money and how that should be projected into an investment analysis. And that, that's very well articulated because so many individuals speak about net present value, internal rate of return, discounted cash flows, but they can't really articulate or explain what they are. And I think you did a great job with all three of those categories there. And the understanding the difference between the sophistication of a of a professional like yourself of underwriting something like that and somebody who just wants to get involved in commercial real estate 
that's the difference between somebody, you know, thinking all the way through all the variables when they're before they're, you know, uh, investing into an asset and somebody who's not. And that's why today, unfortunately, we have so much discretionary income, just high income earners and things of that nature. And real estate is such a hot asset class that people are coming in and they're just spending outrageous amounts of money on these investments because they're just excited to get involved. That makes it more difficult for individuals like ourselves who are doing the proper underwriting and we're saying, okay, you know, in order to get this rate of return that we're looking for, um, we need to invest at this amount. That makes it very difficult because now we have individuals or private, you know, investors and small companies investing as if they're institutional investors, right? They're, they're coming in and getting all, they're paying prices that would yield, you know, uh, or essentially would be at a cap rate, a compressed cap rate that's, that's more so than what we would. And it's very unfortunate, but understand everything that Derek is talking about as far as how you need to look at an asset holistically before going in. And if you're not comfortable with it, obviously find an individual like Derek who does this professionally, who underwrites deals, right? Pay them well for their service and make sure that you're you're approaching this investment uh, correctly. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, one thing I would even add to just kind of wrap up that whole analysis of, you know, how to analyze these deals is what, what's the takeaway from that, right? You need to have strong underwriting assumptions that you're putting into your model because you can get a model to say whatever you want it to say if you tweak the numbers, right? So have strong assumptions, know fundamentally the theoretical underpinnings of your model, but then how do I use the value the model spits out to my advantage. Well, if the if a model says that this asset is worth $120 million, well, I'm not going to pay $120 million. I'm going to come in somewhere under that. I want to leave some meat on the bone, right? Because I could come in and get it for $120 million. And if my underwriting assumptions go perfectly, then, hey, it's a good deal. You know, I paid for what it's worth. I'm going to get those cash flows and I'll get my anticipated return. Mm -hmm. But if I can come in and let's say get that asset for $112 million or $114 million, then that all that does is make it where my, my underwriting assumptions, which we've already determined are strong, all that does is make it where I'm gonna see more upside. Yep. And by also taking it back to what we talked about earlier, by having proper capital expense built into your model, if those aren't realized at the level you put them into your model at, that's instant bottom line money. Like it goes straight to the bottom line if you don't have that capital expense. And so there's plenty of advantages in the environment that we're in today to proper underwriting and how to perceive the numbers that come out of your model. I love it, I love it. So there's so, there's so many good nuggets in this episode, especially for individuals looking to get into commercial real estate. And we're, we're coming up on time now, but for individuals who are really excited and want to get into commercial real estate, what's one piece of advice would you have for a beginner? You know, I, I, I feel like so many people say the things like, oh, you know, get started today, right. start doing it, you know, learn something. And those are all, all very important things. But the number one thing I would say is think long-term. Mm -hmm. I, I have the knowledge today where I could step out on my own, really put a lot into my marketing and branding. And I, I think I could stand on my own two feet within this industry. I've developed that type of knowledge. But instead, because of the emphasis I put on my education as I was doing my undergrad and you know I'm doing my MBA now, mm -hmm. 
because of the emphasis I've put on developing myself for the long term, instead of starting today and being on my own, I've positioned myself to be at a global advisory, to be within global advisory at an international consulting firm. I work with industry experts who have been, you know, decades of experience in underwriting and appraisal. And so my long game, I love where I'm at. I get well paid. I get, I get paid to develop myself every day to become a better expert, to become a better professional. And so what I would tell people today, especially military veterans that have the benefits at their disposal, which we do, don't sell yourself short. There's plenty of opportunities and advantages to the entrepreneurial route. And, you know, I, like my consulting firm is I specifically have that firm because my investment style is wanting to invest in real estate. And I know if I syndicate money to put into real estate, it's going to increase my return that much more, mm -hmm. but it's not my full-time hustle. My full-time hustle is at Altus Group because I'm getting paid to develop myself. And I know five years from now, 10 years from now, because of the position I put myself in, if I one day decide to step out on my own, which I may not, you know, I may continue to climb within this firm mm -hmm. and become a, a giant within the industry. But I know by the time I'm putting into now to develop myself at a, a world-class firm, it, it's going to have just such advantages for my career in the long term. I love that. I love that because entrepreneurship is the shiny thing, right? I don't know if it's the, our generation. I don't know if it's the last couple of years, what it is, but entrepreneurship is the, is the sexy alternative that everybody is chasing. But like you just mentioned, you're in a position that you actually enjoy your job and you're developing the skill sets to be a successful entrepreneur and you're being compensated for it. That, I mean, you know, when you think of all of those kind of variables and inputs, like, I mean, it's a no brainer, right? I mean, you're, 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 you got your undergrad, you're going for your MBA. I'm assuming you're using your, um, your GI bill or some educational benefits to the military for that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, see? So, so what you're doing is you're using the resources that you have to achieve more, to climb that intellectual ladder, right? To that, to the climb that professional ladder in all capacities. So you can go out there and crush it. I love that. That's very, that again, that's, that's another one that hasn't been said on our podcast. Okay. So you dropped so much knowledge. Now all these individuals are like, Hey, I got to reach out to Derek. I got to learn about this underwriting, uh, you know, these commercial assets. How can people get in touch with you? Yeah. So if the best way would be to uh, either find me on LinkedIn which my name is Derek Reiner, D-E-R-R-I-C-K-R-E-I-N-E-R, -E -E or go to my investment firm, Rhino Capital Investments, and that's R-Y-N-O, capitalinvestments.com. I love it. All right, guys. And obviously we'll have all of that there in the show notes. Um, so you guys be sure to go in there, reach out to Derek, connect, add him on LinkedIn, follow some of his content. And I know you're doing big things with your own personal side. Obviously you have your, your, your Altus group as well. So there's a lot of things going on, but I greatly appreciate you coming onto the podcast and dropping all this knowledge, man. Uh, I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. No worries. Thanks so much for watching this episode. A lot of knowledge as always. I need you to do a few things, guys. If you like the content, you got to push the like button. You got to share. And if there's something that was kind of intriguing or something else you want to dive into, go ahead and leave a comment below. But as always, until next time, guys, it's Mike Glasby signing off.